text for today is found uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. So please follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. This is God's Word, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thanks, Mark, for reading that passage. I've uh, lost my voice earlier in this week, so Mark's uh, helping out as much as he can. So a little disclaimer before we get started here. I might have to uh, step aside a minute, but we'll see how it goes. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thanks so much for this gift of worship, Lord. Lord, my heart has been warmed and cheered, Lord, um, just at the wonderful reminders that we've already heard this morning about um, your goodness and your amazing love for us and your steadfast care. Father, just what a blessing it is to come to worship each week and be reminded um, of just how much you love us and what you've done for us. We pray now, Father, as we look at your word, that you would speak to us even more, that you would take the, the power of your word and that you would apply it to our hearts here this morning, that we may leave here changed, molded, and shaped more and more into who you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So many of you know I taught uh, world religions for a long time at a couple of local universities, and we always talked about the history of Christianity. And if you approach the history of Christianity, you sort of have to come to the conclusion that uh, it was and is one of the greatest movements in all of religious history 
and in all of world history. It's had amazing impact and uh, tremendous influence on our culture today and has been so for centuries. By the year 380, more than half of all the world was Christian. Uh, Through the Roman Empire and through Constantine, more than half of the world was Christian. And if you look at statistics today, and they sort of ebb and flow, and people say this and that, but I think it's probably safe to say that more than half of our world's population today claims to be Christian. Whether they are or not, we can debate Uh, But more than half of our world today claims to be Christian. And what that means is that that more than half of our world looks at Jesus Christ and seeks to emulate him with their lives. What's interesting about that is if you look at the end of Jesus's life, particularly, you'll find that Jesus was anything but popular, anything but popular. During the final weeks of Jesus's earthly life, he really only had about 12 to 20 followers, and that is not a lot of people. Most people treated Jesus with sort of apathy, um, and some treated him with just outright opposition. The crowd that, that shouted, crucify him uh, on Good Friday, far outweighed the crowd that celebrated his arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. His opposition far outweighed his popularity. Now, we often think of Jesus as an example of great love and sacrifice, and of course, he is all those things. But if you look at the first century world, you discover that Jesus was a lightning rod for um, all sorts of controversy and all sorts of opposition. And so this morning, as the the first Sunday of Lent, we're going to start a new sermon series that's going to take a look at the Jesus opposition. And we preached a similar sermon series about eight years ago on this very topic. And so what we're going to do is look at different episodes that, that generated a lot of enemies for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the purpose is to help us to see just how powerful his message was, but just how provocative it was as well, both in his day and in our day as well. C.S. Lewis talked about not approaching Jesus with patronizing nonsense. And I think what he meant by that is that when we look at Jesus, we have to look honestly at what he said and what he did and the implications that come from it. But I think the, the gospel writers and what I want us to ask over this sermon series is this. What if we had been there that day? Would we have been the ones weeping at the foot of the cross, watching our Savior being executed? Or would we have been one of the ones that lended our voices to the cries, crucify him? Or would we have simply not cared? Would we have been apathetic to what Jesus came and what he taught and what he did? When we hear the true message of the gospel, what does it do to our hearts today? Our passage opens up with telling us that Jesus came to Nazareth, which was the place in which he was raised. This is, if you kept reading the previous chapters in Luke, uh, Jesus had just faced another type of opposition. He had just come from being in the wilderness or in the desert for 40 days. And if you've read that passage before, he was tempted by the devil uh, for that time period. So he'd faced a spiritual opposition while he was in the desert. Jesus came out of the desert. He traveled around. He probably did a handful of miracles thus far. And so because of his power in 
those miracles, people were starting to talk. And Jesus was getting noticed. The word was spreading about him. The stories were starting to be told. And then the passage that we read this morning from Luke 4 tells us that after all of that, Jesus chose to return home. Now, of course, Jesus was a good Jewish boy who'd raised in a good Jewish community. And so on the Sabbath day, Jesus did what all good Jewish boys and men did. He went to the synagogue. And if you went to the synagogue in Jesus's day, there were all sorts of rituals uh, that would have been involved in this service. Someone would, at the very beginning, would um, recite what's called the Shema, which is essentially, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they'd have prayers uh, throughout the day, prayers throughout the service. They would have readings from the law, then they would have readings from the prophets. And afterwards, there would be an exposition, uh, sort of an ancient version of a sermon, uh, but an ex- ex- uh, exhortation, an exhortation of uh, exposition, exhortation of one of those readings. And so to be asked, they didn't have a specific teacher each week, so to be asked to do one of the readings and then give an exposition uh, was considered to be one of the highest honors in the Jewish culture. And so as Jesus enters the synagogue, Upon returning to his hometown, of course, people have heard the rumors and they've heard the stories. So they give Jesus this high honor of reading and giving the exposition on that reading. So we learn that Jesus unrolls the scroll from the sacred scriptures and he reads this powerful passage from the prophet Isaiah and then he sits down. And I love the verse that comes here. It says, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, fast forward just a few verses and all those people who were in the synagogue and in that town, for that matter, were so enraged at what Jesus said here that they were ready to throw him off a cliff. There's no due process, no court case here. They were so enraged that they took justice in their own hands and decided that they wanted to kill Jesus on the spot. And so what is it about what Jesus said here that enraged them so much? What what filled them with so much wrath and anger that they wanted to kill Jesus on the spot? Well, I think we can think of this opposition in really two categories, and the first has to do with the setting, and I like to call it the hometown opposition. You can see it in verse 22, and all who spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? You see, the setting of this story is really important because it tells us that this synagogue event happens in Nazareth, which was the town in which Jesus was raised. If you know anything about Nazareth, it wasn't the greatest part of town. Uh, It didn't have a great reputation in the first century world in Palestine and that whole area. Didn't have a good reputation socially. Uh, It was believed that only low class people come from Nazareth. And so you would be scorned if you came from this particular town. But despite all of that, nevertheless, this is exactly the town in which Jesus was raised. He'd spent 
the first 30 years of his life in Nazareth. And now he decides to return home and he declares in their midst that he is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. This was no doubt very difficult for all those who were there to accept. It was difficult to accept because all the people that were in that synagogue had watched Jesus grow up from the time in which he was a child. So just imagine this crowd for a moment in the synagogue. Probably Jesus' school teachers were sitting over here, and uh, the kids that he played with as friends that he grew up with were probably sitting over here. Um, The nursery worker who'd held him in the nursery as a baby was probably sitting in the back. There was probably a, a, a gentleman there that said, this is Joseph's son, the carpenter. I have a dining room table in my house that, that he himself made when he was a carpenter. And so doctors and teachers, synagogue rulers, friends, extended family, all these people were there. There were probably no strangers whatsoever to Jesus in this crowd. And then Jesus shows up and he says something outrageous. He said that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And so just imagine how that crowd must have thought growing up in that church. Now Jesus uh, reaches the age of 30. He goes away for a little while. He comes back and he declares the very things that he says here. The crowd must have wondered what is going on with Jesus to claim these very things. Should we sign him up for some sort of therapy or some sort of counseling session? Should we have him committed for his delusions of grandeur? We can't believe the words that are coming out of Jesus's mouth here. But I think there's even something deeper behind that comment. Is this not Joseph's son? Think all the way back to Jesus's birth and the rumors that accustomed his birth and would have largely followed him for the rest of his life. This town, at best, would have imagined Jesus' birth as maybe suspect or uh, full of innuendos and rumor. Remember that Mary had turned up pregnant before her marriage to Joseph was finalized, and if that's the case, two options are possible. Either Mary had slept with someone who wasn't Joseph, her betrothed, Or Mary and Joseph had slept together before their marriage was finalized. Either way, few would have believed what Mary and Joseph actually had said if they had even made an effort to explain. So what that means is for the rest of their lives and for most of Jesus's life, this little family would have had to deal with all sorts of whispers and innuendos. They would have had to deal with people speculating and asking all sorts of questions behind their backs. And now this child, one they had seen grow up for the past 30 years, this child who had suspect lineage at best, was now claiming to be the fulfillment of the scriptures? This was hard for them to accept. This was hard for them to swallow. They couldn't imagine what they were hearing. And so there was all sorts of hometown opposition to Jesus as to who he claimed to be. But I think there was another form of opposition here, and that is a religious opposition. Verse 28, it says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
You see, for the Jewish people, the synagogue was the the most holy of places. Uh, They looked back to the temple, but after the temple had been destroyed and these people had scattered all throughout the world, they would set up different synagogues where they would worship. And the synagogue was this place where they would gather together as a community of faith. It was, of course, a, a far cry from the temple, but it was still the most holy of places for the Jewish people. And so these people had their place of worship, but they also had their heroes of the faith as well. And their heroes were the prophets that we've read about in the Old Testament. Those prophets were uh, the spokesmen and spokeswomen of God. They would receive a message from God. They'd be responsible for communicating that message to the people. And so if you've read any of the Old Testament, you'll come to characters like Abraham and Moses and Nathan. These were all prophets of God, exemplars of the faith, uh, who said that one day an ultimate prophet would come from God. Jesus mentions three other prophets here. He talks about, obviously reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He talks about the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. These were the most respected prophets of all. The ones the Jews looked at as the heroes of the faith. And each one of those prophets spoke of an ultimate prophet who would come and establish the kingdom of God. So Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. He speaks of Elijah. He speaks of Elisha. And then he says at the end that he is the one that they had spoken about. He is the the fulfillment of all of their prophecies. He is the one who's come to establish the kingdom of God. The year of Jubilee has come. The freedom of God has come. Let the celebration begin. In fact, Jesus says, today is the day of God's gracious work. So don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He says in the most holy of places, that he is not just superior to these heroes and these exemplars, but he is more than that. He's the fulfillment of everything that they had been spoken about for all of redemptive history. And at the end of the day, for that crowd, that day, this was too much for them. They were overcome by the words that Jesus said. They grabbed Jesus They take him out of the town. They lead him to his death. They want to throw him off of a cliff, but he slips through them and escapes death because it wasn't yet his time. But of course, we know that one day it would be his time and his enemies would indeed lead him to his death. And so here Jesus faces hometown opposition He faces a religious opposition. And so what about us? This is an interesting story for us to understand, but it happened 2,000 years ago. What does it mean for you and I? What about the opposition of our own hearts, the ways that we oppose the teachings of Jesus? What about our lives? I can remember years ago, I was in a a New Testament class in graduate school and we, uh, we sat there as, as graduate theological students, and the professor said to us at the very beginning of the day, he said that this course would challenge all of our preconceived notions of what we think we know 
about the New Testament. And all the students that were sitting there, very proud of their religiosity, myself included, doubted what he had to say. You're never going to really challenge what we know about the New Testament. Well, I will tell you, he was very right, because we all felt that way at points throughout this class. Why? Because he helped us as a professor to think about uh, what life would look like for a person in this first century. He helped us to think about what a good Jew would have thought as they interacted with Jesus. He helped us understand what it would feel like to be in the audience that day in the synagogue when Jesus said the things that he said. And he helped us to realize that we probably would have joined in with everyone else when they shouted crucify him at the end of his life. In fact, he helped us realize that those who shouted loudest that day were the most religiously proud of his day. You see, I think sometimes we don't realize the significance of what Jesus claims both here and throughout the New Testament and throughout the gospel. Because what Jesus is claiming here is that he is the climax of all the history of the prophets, of the prophetic history. And if that's the case, then he is the climax of all of religious history. And if that is true, that means that Jesus is the climax of all of human history. Imagine someone claiming that all of human history surrounds them and their work. But the implications of this obviously are enormous. If Jesus is who he claims to be, therefore, Jesus not only claims to be the center of human history, but Jesus demands to be the center of your story as well, to be the climax of your life and your story. And what that means for us is this, that you and I, we are not the main characters of our story. Instead, Jesus is. You are not the hero to emulate in your life. Jesus is. Your needs and your wants and your desires are not ultimate. Jesus's are. You exist not to build your own kingdom, but instead to spread his kingdom. Some have claimed that we live in a narcissistic age, and I think there's probably some real truth to that. And that means that we live in an age where we are taught from the very beginning to be obsessed with ourselves and our own needs and our own wants and our own desires. Life is about you and about your happiness and your personal success, and nobody should get in the way of that. And so we wake up each day inherently selfish, fixated on our agenda and our own needs and our own wants. We want to be the masters of our own lives. If you wonder whether you've fallen victim of that, take an inventory of your thoughts day in and day out. Uh, It's not always interesting, or it's not always um, palatable when we take that sort of inventory. But think about how much of your thoughts dwell on you throughout the day. How fixated are you on what others think about you or what you think about yourself? How much are you captured by yourself and your own concerns? And then you meet Jesus. And Jesus tells you that the only way to get life is to actually give your life away. His message is that we ought not to live our lives glorifying ourselves, but instead 
uplifting him and uplifting others. Our lives are about glorifying him and enjoying him forever. You see, when we really understand what Jesus says and what he demands, you better believe there's going to be all sorts of opposition. Why? Because we like being the center of our own universe. We like calling our own shots. We like being our own man and our own woman. But friends, the path of Jesus is really the only path to true life. Give your life away to find it. Jesus is the climax, the the apex of human history, and he needs to be the center of your life as well. So as we explore this topic throughout the Lenten season, what I want us to do is I don't want us to anesthetize Jesus's teaching. I want us to see it for what it is, as disruptive as it is, to let it offend us, to let it offend our modern sensibilities and even our modern notions, but in the process to also let the Spirit open our eyes to see that Jesus really is the only path to true life. No matter how much he's been opposed, no matter how much our hearts oppose him day in and day out, to have the Spirit open our eyes to see that he really is the only path to true life. Let's pray.